0: find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast.
1: On the night of May 7th, 1902, Ludger Silbaris was arrested for drunk and disorderly behavior. Well, there you go, that's a simple opening sentence. You can't tell from where you're sitting, but it's taken me ten or so hours to come up with it. On the night of May 7th, 1902, Ludger Silbaris was arrested for drunk and disorderly behavior. Yeah, I think we're going with that. Even though every last word is, uh, potentially wrong. Was he arrested for drunk and disorderly behavior? Or was it for assault? Was he just drying out? One source says he was in for going to a party in a nearby town, which was a violation of the terms of his bail or his parole, or his imprisonment. Could have been any of them. Or was he, as some have claimed, a murderer? The records of Ludger's arrest aren't available, and neither are any witnesses to whatever his crime may have been. We don't technically speaking, even know that he was arrested that night. One article says he'd already been in jail for a week before May 7th. Another, the one about the out-of-town party, suggests he'd already been incarcerated for some time. What happened, if anything, on the night of May 7th to Ludger Silbaris is an irretrievable mystery. And really, it's what happened the next morning that we're interested in. So, how the opening line should really read is... On the morning of May 8th, 1902, Ludger Silbaris was in jail. But is jail the right word? There was a jail at the police station in St. Pierre. I can't tell you much about it, but whatever you might picture when you hear turn-of-the-century Caribbean jail will probably do. A cell or two built into the back of the station, full of drunks and roughnecks and thieves, any one of which could have been Ludger Silbaris. But on the night of May 7th, 1902, none of them were. Because for some reason, Ludger was instead being held in a more specialized sort of confinement. A cramped and musty cell built of thick, grisly stone, laid in a pit, carved into the very earth itself. Inside, it was a pure kind of darkness. The walls were more than a foot thick. There was only one small window facing another stone wall at just about head height. This small, square slit was the only thing that let in light or air. It was where the guards passed in his food and water, provided they did pass in his food and water, which technically speaking, we do not know. At any rate, the was in jail clause still needs work. Let's try it this way. On the morning of May 8th, 1902, Ludger Silbaris was in a dark, squat, thick stone cell alone. Well, sure, that mm, that works. Except that there is one last problem. Technically speaking, again, technically speaking, I don't know if his name was, in fact, Ludger Silbaris. It might have been. It's entirely possible. That is the name that's on his birth record, after all. But that birth record is not an original. Depending on the article, or advertisement, or book, or record, his name could have been instead Ludger Morell or Ludger Simbaris, or Louis Auguste Cyprus, or August Cyprus, or Joseph Sibaras, or Joseph Sertout, or even Raoul Sartoret. The only piece of information halfway reliable on this score is that the 27-year-old answered to the nickname Sanson. So let's go with that. Even though, if we're gonna get real persnickety, it is not entirely clear that's meant to be Sanson with an N and not the more common Samson with an M. But at some point you have to pull your boots out of the mud and get walking. So how about this? On the morning of May 8th, 1902, a man answering to the name Sanson was in a dark, squat, thick stone cell alone. Like his crime, and the duration of his stay, and even his name, we can't say what he was doing that morning. Maybe he was still asleep, or pacing the tiny cell impatiently, or nursing a hangover. Maybe he was waiting for someone to bring him some water, or breakfast watching that small slit above the sturdy, tough door, trying to spot the shadow of a guard flit over the thin dawn light. Unlike everything else so far, what we do know for sure is that at 8.02, the shadow came. But it wasn't like a guard, and it wasn't carrying breakfast. It descended like a pure and sudden midnight, bathing the already dim cell in pitch. And then... Just barely before Sanson's very eyes, the world ended. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Today's episode I have come from hell. In case it had somehow escaped notice, there isn't much known about Sanson. His birth record reads June 1st, 1874, which could be right for all we know, but who's to say, really? We don't know his profession. He might have cut sugarcane, or built houses, or fished. He might have gambled. He might have been a tough, a robber, a thief. He might have been all of the above, and more. He was illiterate, and spoke a thickly-accented Carib French. While we can entertain doubts about the exact day of his birth, the location is known. A small fishing village called Leprechure, on the northwest side of Martinique, an island at the very southern tip of the Lesser Antilles, on the edge of the Caribbean Sea. Aside from its natural beauty, the island of Martinique is probably best known as the birthplace of Josephine Bonaparte, Napoleon's first wife. Or else, it is most famous for what happened to Sanson. It's safe to say that the night of May 7th, 1902 was a low point for Sanson. Whether it was the worst night of his life or not is unknown. In addition to his poverty and his lack of education, Sanson was known to become disorderly and violent when he drank to excess. He was known to drink to excess when he drank. And he was known to drink... Well, he was known to drink. However long he'd been in the cell as of May 8th, and for what reason, it's safe to assume Sanson was well acquainted with the local law enforcement of the city of St. Pierre, where that cell was located, about five and a half miles south of his hometown of Le Leprechor. Despite the long list of names and stories and dates contradictorily given for the man known as Sanson, all of them agreed that he was a drinker and a felon. The only thing missing to confirm that position is the actual criminal records themselves. They are nowhere to be found for reasons that will become dramatically clear. In 1626, a French pirate by the name of Pierre Belland d'Esnambouc came to Paris. His goal was to form a new company that would trade goods between the French Caribbean and France. He wanted permission to create new French colonies in the Caribbean, but that could only be accomplished through slave labor, which was not permissible under French colonial law. But Escombuc found a workaround in the person of Armand Jean du Plessis, otherwise known as the infamous Cardinal Richelieu. Richelieu was as powerful as he was corruptible, and he knew a profitable scam when he heard one. He gave his support to Eskambuk in exchange for being dealt in as a primary shareholder of the new company. Eskambuk's first colony was located on the island of St. Kitt and populated by slaves which he won through piracy, which I think is even worse than normal slavery, maybe? The St. Kitts colony fell apart in less than three years, when it was sacked by the Spanish. The French colonials and slaves fled the island, and the company was dissolved. But Cardinal Richelieu simply transferred its assets to a new one, with Eskambuc at the helm again. Under his new commission, Eskambuc seeded French colonies all about the Caribbean, Guadalupe, Dominica, he even retook St. Kitts from the Spanish, but his first port of call, after the fall of his first colony, was the small volcanic island of Martinique, where he built a fort around which a city soon formed, named nominally after its patron saint, but more directly for the thieving, slaving pirate that founded it, St. Pierre. The history of Saint-Pierre and of Martinique is like a perfect microcosm of both American colonialism and French politics rolled into one. As such, it is a brutal history, centered on a swirling maelstrom of racism and political opportunism. In some ways, the French styles of Caribbean colonialism and racism were softer and, by degrees, less despicable than the British and American varieties that you are likely more familiar with. African slaves on Martinique were offered more liberty and arguably more humanity than those in the American colonies, for instance. It was easier to escape slavery, to become a so-called free man of color, and those free men of color were privy to some amount of political and financial power. Meanwhile, the native Carib people were driven further and further to the outreaches of the island until they were finally extinguished fully in 1660. Some managed to win exile, but most were killed in what can only be called a genocide. 18th century Martinique maintained the same complicated juxtaposition as the 17th had. The island prospered, mostly growing sugarcane and coffee, but the work was impossibly hard. Indentured servants and slaves alike could win their freedom by toiling for years in the fields, but most died before that day came. Periodic hurricanes and earthquakes racked the island, and between those came more human disasters, military invasions over and over by the English and the Dutch mostly. There were revolts and counter-revolts, new influxes of immigrants from France, Jewish refugees from Brazil, fresh slaves from Africa. In 1762, England captured Martinique, and France traded ownership of the entirety of Canada in order to get it back. The Treaty of Paris established the island as French once and for all. Until 1792, three years into the French Revolution and a year after the Haitian Revolution, a new wave of turmoil slammed into Martinique. The plantation owners in the countryside still supported the monarchy, while the people of Saint-Pierre backed the Republic. On April 4th, the French Legislative Assembly voted to give citizenship to all men of color. The Republicans landed in 1794 to take the capital of Fort Royal, and the slave owners panicked. They welcomed the British to invade and free them from freeing their slaves. Martinique was returned to the French in 1802, specifically to the person of Napoleon Bonaparte, who faced the question of whether to honor the abolition of slavery the Republic had promised or reinstate what had never actually been abolished. Napoleon knew nothing of the Antilles, but he knew someone who did his wife josephine who had been born and raised on martinique she advised her husband that the island could not survive without the institution of slavery and so the tyrannical liberator re-established what was already the status quo slavery was officially abolished in martinique when the british retook the island during the napoleonic wars in 1807 then it was officially abolished again when louis the 18th took power in 1814 it was officially abolished once more, in 1815, when Napoleon escaped his exile and briefly retook France before the Battle of Waterloo. Still, the practice stubbornly persisted under each and every iteration of these regimes. It only actually ended in May of 1848, when the governor gave in to quell a revolt. The revolt had started when a black man from the small fishing village of Leprechor had been imprisoned in Saint-Pierre a sequence of events that would be repeated almost identically 52 years later, with the man known variously as Ludger Silberis, August Cyprus, Joseph Sertout, and Rule Sartoret, but whom we call simply Sanson. This... The political history of Martinique is important to the story of Sanson for reasons that will take a good while to make sense. I can't promise it'll ever make full sense, actually. You'll have to piece some of it together for yourself, I fear. For now, what you need to know is that in 1902, St. Pierre was something of an earthly paradise called Little Paris, or the Paris of the West Indies. While Fort de France was the political capital of the island, everyone knew that Saint-Pierre was the cultural and financial center. Saint-Pierre had a regular population of around 28,000, which had ballooned somewhat in the days before May 8th. It was sheltered from the trade winds by verdant emerald hills to the east and south, with a wide crescent beach to the west, full of deep blue water that made it a perfect and popular port. On the morning of May 8, 1902, there were something like 17, 18, or 19 ships in the bay. Again, we don't know the exact number because the port records were destroyed, among other things. One ship, the Orselina, had left in a hurry the night before, when Sanson had potentially gotten into whatever trouble he'd potentially gotten into, but it had been replaced by another, the Roraima. The Roraima was carrying a load of potassium as well as passengers from Montreal. It had stopped off in New York, then Bermuda, then Barbados. Then it had gotten thrown off course and been named officially missing on April 28th only to reappear at St. Pierre on the morning of May 8, 1902, at 6.30 a.m. From the harbor, the tired and relieved travelers could look out over the beauty of the city. The dark blue waters, the verdant emerald hills, the orange and yellow houses with their red-tiled roofs, packed high and tight along thin streets with whimsical names like Street of Friendship and Climb to Heaven Street. All beneath the eye of the city's central and defining feature. A huge, lumbering mountain to the north, 4,500 feet high. Mount Pele. And on the morning of May 8th, 1902, Mount Pele was smoking. Pele had been sending out warnings for months, maybe years, In May of 1901, there had been a picnic on the top of the mountain, as there frequently were. From St. Pierre, looking up at the peak six miles away, it wouldn't have looked very inviting. Mount Pele means literally peeled mountain, because that is how Pele looked, as if someone had taken a knife and peeled away the top like an apple, leaving it bald and off-white. But at that top, hidden away from view from below, was a beautiful unnaturally blue and warm lake called the pond of palms the water was hard and minerally and visitors could float in it like they had found a freshwater red sea after the hard hike they could even have a drink the water was clean even if it did taste densely of sulfur among the picnickers in may of 1901 was a young couple who snuck away from the main party for an unknown reason, which you can probably guess, and so can I, but technically, the reason was unknown, so let's let our sense of propriety guide us and pretend we have no idea what a pair of young paramours on the top of a mountain with a romantic view might want alone time for. The two snuck away and found themselves at the less tourist-friendly Dry Pond, a smaller crater below the Pond of Palms. Like it says in the name, Dry Pond was dry, but when our canoodling couple looked down into it, they noticed something weird. There was a dead tree sticking up from the bottom of the crater. Wisps of something that looked like smoke were pouring out of its base. It looked like smoke, but it smelled like sulfur. Back in St. Pierre, someone else was noticing the same thing. Gaston Landis, professor of natural science at the Lycée de Saint-Pierre, which sounds pretty prestigious, but it's worth noting now that the Lycée was the equivalent to a modern high school, and Landis therefore a high school science teacher. Which, no offense to high school science teachers whatsoever, some of my favorite people are high school science teachers, but eventually, you're going to agree with me that it might have been better for everyone if Gaston Landis' title was as fancy as it sounded. Anyway, Gaston Landis, professor of natural science at the Lycée de Saint-Pierre, had a telescope. And chief among the things he trained it on, quite naturally, was the top of the volcanic mountain six miles to his north. Near the time the horny hikers noticed steam coming from a tree within the dry pond, Landis noticed it too. The plume of steam, or maybe smoke, came and went during the next few months, but even when there was no smoke, or when the smoke was obscured by clouds haloing around the bald mountain, there were other signs. The villages, plantations, and rum distilleries set around Mount Pele began to suffer from pests. Bugs, snakes, mice, and rats all began to infest the hills around the peak, eating crops and invading houses. People could smell the sulfur sometimes when the wind turned and brought the smoggy air down the mountain. Cattle started getting sick, dogs were nervous, and throughout the city of St. Pierre, fine dinners were continuously ruined. Whenever a merchant or politician or a newspaper man or a diplomat set the table for guests, they found that all of their silver was tarnished. On April 23, 1902, the thin ribbons of smoke that only the high school teachers and fornicating picnickers had previously noticed became more marked. It transformed quite suddenly into a pillar of dark gray ash. The metamorphosis was accompanied by a loud rumble, like an earthquake, that shook the ground all the way to St. Pierre and beyond, as if Pele were bellowing out a dire warning to pay the mountain mind. The next morning, St. Pierre awoke to a most peculiar sight. The immigrants from colder climates might have thought, for one confused moment, that it was Christmas. The town was blanketed in what looked like snow. It looked like snow, but it took little inspection and only a dollop of sense to recognize it as ash. It piled high and heavy in St. Pierre and the villages like Leprechor to the north. Twice in the next two days, Mount Pele ejected further ash clouds on the people around the volcano. Men had to climb up onto their roofs to sweep it off, as the weight of the ash threatened to buckle their homes. In the streets and fields, the ash turned with only the slightest precipitation into gray, dense mud, almost like concrete that blocked roads and spoiled crops. A Parisian expat in Saint-Pierre that day sent a letter back home, reading,
0: My calmness astonishes me. I am awaiting the event tranquilly. My only suffering is from the dust which penetrates everywhere, even through closed windows and doors. We are all calm. Mama is not a bit anxious. Edith alone is frightened. If death awaits us, there will be a numerous company in which to leave the world." Will it be by fire or asphyxia? It will be what God wills. You will have our last thoughts. Tell Brother Robert that we are still alive. This will, perhaps, no longer be true when this letter reaches you.
1: Throughout the following days and nights, people all around were shaken by what sounded like cannon fire, reverberating from the summit down through the valleys. Ships outside of Martinique, over the horizon, reported fear that hostilities had once again touched off between France and Britain over the island. From his telescope, Gaston Landis could see that the misidentification of artillery fire was only half wrong. The craters he'd been watching spew smoke were now hurling rocks into the air, almost precisely as if some bombardiers were warding off an invading navy. One intrepid and curious hiker made his way up to the Pond of Palms to have a look. It was, on sight, no longer even technically potable and definitely not a good place for a swim. The waters had been replaced, or at least tainted, by a thick bubbling tar. Three days later, another group of hikers made their way to the top. They saw the Pond of Palms with its gross, boiling, contaminated water, but they also took a look at the other crater. It was no longer appropriate to call it the Dry Pond, because it very much was not. In fact, it was filled all the way up with an even more disturbing substance. It almost looked like mercury, or molten silver. Sulfurous steam and smoke broke loose from the bubbling surface. And most alarming of all... All of the plants in the surrounding area were dead. Two days later, a giant dark cloud formed over the crater, raining hot cinders on the countryside. But by the end of the month, the volcanic activity seemed, to the naked eye at least, to have mostly abated. Gaston Landis wasn't so sure. He didn't just have a telescope, but a seismograph. And every day when he replaced the spent roll of paper with a new one, he saw little ticks. Tiny earthquakes, mostly too small to notice, but increasing in frequency. There were other signs that things weren't over yet, but nobody knew how to interpret them. Water flowed down from the mountaintop, although it had not been raining. It caused local rivers to swell and flood. The water was warm, and it carried volcanic boulders and burnt trees down into the smaller villages. A group of washerwomen, who were doing laundry in the normally placid Pere River, were carried away by a rushing torrent, never to be seen again. Their deaths were but a prelude for bigger things to come. On May 5th, one of the craters collapsed, sending a gush of boiling water into the Blanc River, which overran its banks and washed away the Guerin sugar mill and rum refinery. It buried 150 workers under 200 feet of hot mud. The Guerin sugar mill had been the lifeblood of the small village of Leprachor, hometown of the man known as Sanson. The disaster along the Blanc wasn't just a trauma or a financial hardship to the villagers. It was also a proof of concept. The Blanc River flood showed that if the next flood were made of lava, everyone in Leprachor would die. They began petitioning the government to evacuate the village. Those who could manage to leave on their own through the ashy, virtually impassable flooded road to the south did so. They went to the only safety they knew. They went to Saint-Pierre.
0: Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industry shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast.
1: The clouds hung perpetually over Mount Pele now, like a black velvet blanket punctuated by a non-stop barrage of aerial lightning strikes. From Saint-Pierre, the people could see the top of the volcano glowing in the dark. Some people tried to flee the city, but many more refugees, survivors from the sugar mill from Leprechure and other towns buried in ash, replaced them. Rather than emptying out, the population swelled. People slept on streets and in alleys. The police barracks, the Catholic Church, any place that could offer a roof for the refugees was offered up. On the morning of May 4th, Monsignor Gabriel Perel gave a homily for the parishioners of St. Pierre's Cathedral that ranks towards the top of most appropriate Bible quotes ever. He opened the Sunday service with Psalm 46, which begins... God is our refuge and strength an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. Monsignor Perel urged the Catholics of St. Pierre, which is to say the people of St. Pierre, to trust in God and trust in their government. He explained that the governor, Louis Moutet was convening a scientific commission to examine the risks and find the best course of action. Until then, everyone should remain calm. Or, as Psalm 46 put it, Be still, and know that I am God. When the service had concluded, the people poured into the streets of St. Pierre, wearing damp handkerchiefs over their faces. To protect them from the stinging suffocating ash-filled air on may 7th the day of ludger's potential drunken dealings there was a general air of sulfuric chaos about saint pierre the volcano boomed and roared in the distance ash and cinders fell everywhere the black clouds were illuminated by shocks of constant lightning the rivers were thick and undrinkable vermin and insects overwhelmed the fields, livestock were sick, and birds fell from midair, dead in the streets. Forget the Psalms, it was like something out of Exodus, the plagues of Egypt. Yet, incredibly, almost no one left St. Pierre, with a few exceptions, none more exceptional than Captain Marino LeBuff and his ship, the Orselina. The Orsulina was contracted to transport a haul of Antian sugar to La Havre in the north of France, but the ship and her captain were based out of Naples, within full view of Mount Vesuvius. Vesuvius, the mountain that had swallowed Pompeii and Herculaneum, that had killed Pliny the Elder, no one in Naples could ever forget. If someone managed to forget, Vesuvius could always be counted on for a reminder. The volcano loomed over Naples— and during Labuff's time there, he had seen it erupt on at least four occasions. From the deck of the Orselina, under the darkening clouds of Mount Pele, Lebeuf was getting anxious. Loading the ship was taking longer than usual. The stevedores were so assaulted by ash and rocks and noxious gas that they had to stop every few minutes to wipe their faces and rinse their mouths. Forget this, Labuff thought. He told the crew to stop and jump on board, they would be setting off as soon as possible. Less than half the promised sugar was aboard, and the shipping agent chided LaBeouf. He couldn't leave now without violating his contract. Leboeuf responded with a hard and grim line. I would rather sail with half a cargo than run such a risk as a man must run here. I don't know anything about Mount Pele, but if Vesuvius were looking as your volcano looks this morning, I would get out of Naples and I'm going to get out of here. With that, he stepped aboard the ship's launch and ordered his men to go. The shipping agent yelled at him from shore that he wasn't clearing the Orsalina for passage and that if LeBuff left now, he'd have him arrested when he arrived in France. I'll take my chances, Captain LeBuff yelled back as his launch slipped away. On word that LaBeouf was planning on running without clearance, two customs officers rowed out to the Orselina and planted themselves on her deck. They threatened to stay until the ship was stacked with sugar. LaBeouf told the men, Gentlemen, I am going to sail from this port in a few minutes. If you want to go ashore, now is your time to do it. If you stay here, I assure you, I shall take you to France. The officers were incredulous. If Leboeuf did as he said, they told him, he would be charged with kidnapping. Leboeuf said nothing more to them. He simply turned and told his crew to raise anchor. The officers disembarked back to their longboat just in time to avoid a safe trip to France. In less than 24 hours, they were dead, along with everyone else in Saint-Pierre. With one incredible exception. The regular population of St. Pierre Martinique in 1902 was around 28,000. But by the morning of May 8th, after weeks of disturbing signs or ash falls and earthquakes and boiling hot rivers breaking their banks, the number of people in the city had grown. Exactly how many were in St. Pierre at 8.02 a.m. on May 8th is yet another fundamentally unknowable fact. But why there were more than usual, why people flocked to St. Pierre rather than away, is something we can answer. It'll just take a bit of teasing out. The best place to begin is with that scientific commission Monsignor Perel teased at Sunday service. It was called by one of the major players in this story, Louis Moutet, the appointed governor of Martinique. Mutet had only been on the job in Martinique for 10 months, but he'd been working for decades to get there. Born to a working-class family, he'd managed to rise above his station through, ironically, his socialist politics. He'd worked as a newspaper editor and secretary of the Paris Historical Society, until, at age 29, he joined the French Colonial Service. He bounced around French colonies in West Africa and Indochina for the next few years, advancing both through his own initiative and by his marriage to Marie-Henriette de Copet, whose uncle was the deputy of Le Havre. In 1892, Louis and Marie landed in Guadalupe, where Louis was appointed as Minister of Internal Affairs. The young couple fell in love with the Caribbean instantly and together vowed to make their life there. But there was little room for advancement in Guadalupe, and soon the Mutets found themselves flung off to Senegal and then Ivory Coast, where he was named Governor Fourth Class. He was then promoted to Third Class and took an appointment in French Guiana late in 1898. Guiana was a rough hang for the French colonials. It was soaked in malaria, and most of its citizens were prisoners on the appropriately nicknamed Devil's Island. But it was a promotion, and it was closer, geographically speaking, to the ultimate goal of returning to the Caribbean, so Louis and Marie made the most of it. The most of it, for Louis, meant distinguishing himself during the greatest French scandal of his lifetime, the Dreyfus Affair. Alfred Dreyfus was an artillery officer who had been wrongfully accused of and railroaded into treason charges on account of his Jewish heritage and sentenced to incarceration on Devil's Island. In 1896, the French head of counterespionage, Marie-Georges Picard, had uncovered that the actual perpetrator who had sold French military secrets to Germany wasn't Dreyfus, but Major Ferdinand Esterhazy, but Picard's superiors suppressed the evidence, cleared Esterhazy, and lobbed additional trumped-up charges on Dreyfus. In response, Emile Zola published an open letter on the front page of La Aurora, under the bold-faced headline, J'accuse, In which he said President Foray's government was holding Dreyfus unlawfully due to rampant government anti-Semitism. The pressure on Fauré's government was immense. The Dreyfus case became a cause célèbre, battered daily by some of France's most famous and revered figures. And Moutet was in the midst of it all. He owed his career to Fauré and managed to thread a fine needle, returning Dreyfus to France to be retried and earning another promotion for the trouble. He had finally earned the position and place he and Marie had been looking for. Lieutenant-Governor, in charge of the French colony at Martinique. The future held nothing but blue skies, save for that horrifying black cloud over Mount Pele. In early May of 1902, Moutet's plum appointment was looking a touch overripe. He was facing a trio of crises for which he was woefully unprepared and underpowered, For starters, there was a brewing political squabble, which we will come back to. Then there was Mount Pele, whose behavior was increasingly alarming. Finally, there was a humanitarian crisis, triggered by the destruction of the Garin rum distillery. Not only had the mudslide killed 130 people, including Garin's wife and daughter, it had also destroyed the one road out of Sanson's village, Leprechorre. Mutet had been quick to commandeer supplies and food for a relief effort, but when his ship reached the village, he found its residents in an understandable uproar. The malicious force that had destroyed Guerin's factory had come within a few hundred yards of Bering Shore. The single tall chimney that survived from the distillery building was within easy eyeshot of the village. The people of shore they didn't want food, they wanted out! They weren't alone, either. Smaller villages dotted all around the base of Pele were unwilling to take their chances. Everyone wanted an evacuation, to the safety of Saint-Pierre. But was Saint-Pierre safe? Louis Moutet didn't know. Nothing in his diplomatic career had prepared him for such a question, which is why, wisely, he organized that scientific commission. The wisdom of that decision was only tempered by a couple of hitches. The charge of the commission was to determine whether St. Pierre was safe from the volcano, which was grumbling six miles to the north. But no one in 1902 had the kind of understanding of volcanoes necessary to make that determination. In 79 AD, Mount Vesuvius wiped the cities of Pompeii and Herculaneum off the map, Much more recently, in 1883, Krakatoa and the surrounding archipelago between Java and Sumatra were almost entirely destroyed, killing more than 35,000 people. In both cases, the main destructive action had come from pyroclastic flows, fast-moving walls of superheated gas and strata. But in 1902, nobody knew that. Nobody knew that such a thing as a pyroclastic flow existed at all. Certainly not Louis Moutet or his scientific commission. Moutet named five men to that commission. Lieutenant Colonel Jules Gerbault of the French Artillery, William Lyons, Chief Engineer for Martinique, Paul Merville, a chemist and pharmacist for the military garrison at the capital, Fort de France, and two professors. Er, sort of. They weren't professors as we would define them, more like high school science teachers. Eugene Dozé and, of course, Gaston Landis. Not a one of them was qualified, even by the standards of the time, to remark upon volcanic risks. But together, their adjacent expertises might meet the moment. Lieutenant Colonel Gerbalt's portfolio in the commission was threefold— For one, he was meant to be in charge, although Governor Moutet took that duty from him immediately. Secondly, as an expert in artillery fire, he could say safely that the humongous stones being shot out of Pele could not reach Saint-Pierre. Finally, Gerbault could confidently speak about the logistics of evacuating 30,000 people from a city which had but one rough road and an overcrowded port for egress. The prospect, he thought... Was dim. William Leonce, the engineer, had to concur. The rainy season had just begun and the dirt road out of town had already turned to mud. Any evacuation along it would be stymied, and the dangers of leading a wagon train through it were as great as anything a volcano could promise. In contrast, Leonce's assessment of St. Pierre was far rosier. As he saw it, the city itself was under two main threats ash and fire. The ash raining down was heavy, and as had been shown in Le Leprecheur, if it wasn't hastily shoveled off of roofs, they would collapse. Otherwise, it was not a danger per se, so long as someone was around to do the shoveling. The cinders that sporadically joined the ash in falling upon the city posed a real risk of fire. But, as with the ash, that risk was largely about who was around to deal with it. Since the Blanc River was overflowing, there was no shortage of water for a fire brigade to utilize, as long as there were enough people around to form the brigade. Fire, ash, mud, rocks. All four issues indicated that the best course was to keep the people of St. Pierre in St. Pierre, where they could shovel and splash, and where they wouldn't get caught on impassable roads. But there were still more threats to analyze. Toxic gas was a known danger of volcanoes, at least since Pliny the Younger described his uncle succumbing to it. The smell of sulfur was making people sick in St. Pierre, or at least uncomfortable. Field hands were fainting, and birds were falling dead out of the sky. Rumors around town were that horses were dying where they stood, though as near as anyone in the commission could tell, that wasn't true. Still, the gas was a concern. Evaluating the threat level fell to the chemist, Paul Merville. But for reasons never fully explained, Merville didn't show up in Saint-Pierre that day to be a part of the commission. Perhaps he was too afraid to get that close to Pele. That left Gaston Landis and his colleague, Eugène Dose of the Lycée. Landis was as close to an expert on volcanoes as existed on Martinique, but that wasn't saying much. Martinique had the finest library in all the Caribbean. Grand and regal as it was, when a curious Gaston Landis had gone investigating, he found its section on volcanoes woefully lacking. There were no academic works on the subject available whatsoever, just two books written years ago for a general audience those books mostly focused on volcanoes in iceland and hawaii which were sensational book-worthy material because of their large beautiful terrifying lava flows aside from the ash and the fire and the mud and the rocks it was lava that martinique had to be wary of landis and doze thought but on that score saint pierre was sitting pretty Mount Pele was six miles away, and the lava flows described in Hawaii and Iceland were slow-moving, molasses-like affairs. Not to mention that between the volcano and the city, there were a series of valleys and crevices, which any lava would be likely to collect in. And if, in the worst-case scenario, the lava did reach the shore, it was likely to take the very path that the mud flow had when it buried the Guerin sugar mill, straight down the River Blanc, to the ocean, and through Les Prechores. So, is that it then? Louis Moutet might have asked, and I say might have, because, of course, there are no direct records or eyewitnesses of the commission's conversation. Gaston Landis wasn't sure— Yes, as far as he had read, they'd covered all their bases, but there was some niggling doubt left in him. The Garin sugar mill had been destroyed by a gigantic boiling mud flow. Before that, the rivers had swelled with warm water, even though there had been no rain. There was nothing he'd read that described anything like that. What else weren't his books telling him? Well, if he thought of anything, he should let his fellow commissioners know, concluded Governor Moutet. But until then, given the preponderance of the data, he was advising that the people of St. Pierre stay put and that those from surrounding villages higher up the slope should join them. And he, personally, would see to evacuating Le Louis Moutet arguably made the right call, given the facts on the table but it is worth noting that he made that call pretty quickly and pretty absolutely. If you needed people to stay behind to fight fires and shovel ash, then why not clear out those who weren't needed for those efforts? If the young or elderly would have trouble following the mud road to Fort de France, then why not load those people onto the ferries, which normally went between the two cities? Maybe evacuating the whole city was impractical, But why not try to evacuate some of it? That is where we get to the politics.
0: Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say.
1: Kat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? In 1899, Amadie Knight made Martinican history when he became the first black man to serve in the French Senate. Knight was a former naval officer and engineer who was educated in Paris before returning to Martinique to form a rum distillery and a series of plantations with his father. He had been elected deputy mayor of St. Pierre, secretary of the Chamber of Commerce, and president of the city council before he made his Senate run, as a member of the Radical Socialist Party, which was a real ragtag affiliation, glued together mainly by the thought that a majority black island, maybe, should have some black representation in government. This, predictably, scared the white aristocrats of Martinique out of their GD minds. But whether the Radical Party could bring real, long-lasting change to Martinique in politics or not rested on whether Knight's success could be repeated, and he knew it. He needed support from the Chamber of Deputies, the lower house of the Third French Republic, to which Martinique was given two members. And on Sunday, April 27th, 1902, there would be a race for one of those deputies. If Knight could help field a fellow black radical, he might be able to transform the politics of Martinique. That's what he hoped, but it is what many whites on the island feared. On April 27th, there had been three candidates for the job. Fernand Clerc was a local industrialist who'd improved sugarcane cultivation on the island. He was radically progressive in his politics and a nominal ally to Senator Knight, but he was also white, so the Martinican aristocracy threw themselves mostly behind him. He managed to get 350 votes more than his radical, knight-backed competitor, Louis Persin. But the third candidate, Joseph Legrossier, got 750 votes, meaning that nobody had a majority. There would have to be a runoff between the white clerk and the black Persin, the assumption seems to have been that Le Legrosier's support would mostly move to Persin, making the radical a favorite. To many of the white power brokers of Martinique, that was unacceptable. There appeared to be but one way to seal the deal for their preferred candidate, Fernand Clerc: juice the turnout. Most of Persin's support was spread around the smaller rural villages, like Les Prechures whereas the white aristocratic vote was centered in... where else? Saint-Pierre. As the most morbid of luck would have it, the activity around Mount Pele was looking like a real November surprise. Persin's base was unlikely to come out in big numbers, considering that they were, you know, fleeing for their lives. Meaning, there was a real chance that Clerk could pull off a win. So long as people did not leave St. Pierre. Whether or to what degree electoral concerns affected the decision not to evacuate St. Pierre is the most contentious and controversial debate of this story by far. What's not debatable is that some of Clerks' supporters and, moreover, Persin's detractors were the loudest voices telling people to stay put. The mayor of St. Pierre, for instance, Rudolf Fouché, gave speeches urging residents to remain, and even papered the city with signed posters on May 6th, assuring everyone that there was nothing to worry about. The Monsignor's homily may also have been meant, in part at least, to keep voters in town. The most active propagandist was, without question, Andreas Harard, the publisher of St. Pierre's newspaper, La Colonnaise. In the run-up to May 8th, which was three days before the runoff was scheduled, La Colonnaise published a nearly non-stop barrage of articles reminding its readership to vote on Sunday and minimizing the threat of the roaring volcano in the distance. On May 3rd, his front-page editorial said, in part, It would seem that many signs have warned us that Mount Pele was in a state of serious eruption. There were slight earthquake shocks this noon. The rivers are in overflow. The need now is for the people outside St. Pierre to seek the shelter of the town. Citizens of St. Pierre, it is your duty to give these people succor and comfort. On May 7th, when the clouds and debris were so thick that Captain Leboeuf was willing to risk kidnapping charges to get away, Harard devoted the front page of Les Colonnais to endorsing Clerc. That piece was followed by a technical, and technically incorrect, summation of the state of modern volcanology, with an eye for soothing citizen concerns. There was an interview with Gaston Landis, in which the science teacher was quoted, or uh, probably misquoted, as saying, Mount Pele presents no more danger to the inhabitants of St. Pierre than does Vesuvius to those of Naples. Harard also made a lot of hay over St. Vincent, an island 50 miles to the south of Martinique. On May 6th, St. Vincent's volcano had erupted, killing more than 1,600 people. This might have given some on Martinique pause. If it could happen there, why not here? But others worked under the opposite assumption, that this eruption was what all of the activity at Pele had been working up to. And now, with the pressure tragically released, the threat would abate. Gerard championed that view loudly. The case against Andreas Gerard looks very strong, save for one major piece of exculpatory evidence I will hold back a few minutes longer. But what about Governor Louis Mutet? He was a friend of Harard, and had been spurned by both Persin and Senator Knight, who, by the way, weren't above using Mount Pele for their own cynical political purposes either. At a campaign event on May 3rd, Knight told the audience, the mountain will only sleep when the whites are out of office. Honestly, the only person in this story who for sure wasn't affected by the prospect of the election was Fernand Clerk. The progressive Republican, who needed people to stay in St. Pierre to win office, was nevertheless one of the only officials to advocate for evacuation. Unfortunately, Clerk was not a very good politician. And the same way he struggled to convince people to vote for him, he failed to win people over to leaving with him. The motives of everyone else are suspect. Harar's newspaper articles, Mayor Fouché's posters, Monsignor's homily, Knight's speech suggesting that the volcano supported Persin, and, most importantly, Louis Moutet's conclusion not to evacuate. Each of these decisions are easy to view through a callous, mercenary lens. But it is difficult to conclude that any of these men were lying, per se. Because they all followed their own advice. Staying in St. Pierre through May 8th. While there are a handful of existent eyewitness accounts of what happened on the morning of May 8th, 1902, the bulk of our understanding of the eruption of Mount Pele has to be drawn through inference. The time of the eruption can be surmised through three sources. At 8 a.m. sharp, the telegraph office at Fort de France got a message from St. Pierre indicating the channel was open. Fort de France asked for an update on the status of the volcano. Instead of a response, there was a wobbly, high-pitched ping, and then silence. At the same time, a man was on the phone in Fort de France with his business partner in St. Pierre when he heard, quote, a dreadful scream, then another much weaker groan, like a stifled death rattle, then silence. The third source would be found days later, after the fires were out and people were able to return to the site. The clock from Gaston Landis's Lycée de Saint-Pierre was discovered on the ground. Its hands stopped at 8.02, the moment Saint-Pierre ceased to exist. Witnesses from a distance saw the first explosion, which came from the uppermost crater, the Pond of Palms, ejecting a mushroom cloud of black smoke straight up into the sky. Moments later, the other crater, the Dry Pond, echoed out its reply with an enormous pyroclastic flow, like a tidal wave of ash and rock, which broke out at a speed of 100 miles per hour, roaring down the mountainside straight towards Saint-Pierre. It took less than two minutes to arrive, not long enough to escape, but long enough for many people in the streets to watch and realize and know. The sheer concussive force of the blast was enough to level most structures in the city, and anyone caught by it received a concrete punch 30 feet high. Those buildings that weren't immediately toppled and those people who weren't immediately crushed were in for worse. The temperature inside the cloud was more than a 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit. In places, it may have topped out at nearly 2,000. It cooked any flesh within it. Days later, bodies would be found with their brains seeping out through their skulls, their organs slewing off through their chests, Evidence that their insides had flash-boiled right out of them. The heat ignited anything even theoretically combustible. During the three minutes it took to pass through St. Pierre, the stone walls of the city began to melt. If you were in the harbor of St. Pierre at 8.02 a.m. on May 8, 1902, you would have been horrified. But not for long. Since any illusions you might have held about the water stopping the pyroclastic flow would have immediately dissolved. The Roraima, which had arrived in port after being lost at sea just an hour and a half ago, now found itself in more peril than it had previously. The decks were set ablaze, and the captain made a panicked order to put out the fires before realizing that he himself was on fire and jumping overboard. The ship burned for three hours before it sunk. All passengers aboard died, aside from one young girl and her nurse. A couple dozen people in the harbor that morning managed to survive, most of them aboard the steamship Rodham, which was barely in port when the eruption occurred. Even still, the blaze almost capsized the Rodham. It shook men from the decks and started fires which burnt many more. Twenty-eight people on board were killed. The survivors managed to get the broken boat out to sea. Other survivors managed to do so by jumping in the water, getting behind their own burning boats for cover, and staying as submerged as possible. One sailor described feeling the water warm around him and wondering if he had survived being burnt, only to be boiled. The badly damaged Rodham managed to just barely make its way to the neighboring island of St. Lucia. At that point, though people had seen the smoke and heard the crash, they did not know what had happened at St. Pierre. When the Customs House asked the burnt and injured Captain Freeman his point of origin, he answered in a terrible Frayed whisper, I have come from hell. On land, prospects were dimmer still. Fernand Clerc, having failed to advocate for the evacuation that would have cost him the election, took his family and ran. He managed to pick up a few scared people on the road on his way out of St. Pierre and drove them to safety. A priest who had climbed a hill to get a better view of the rumbling instead had a front-row seat to the searing, suffering deaths of his parishioners. A ten-year-old girl, Havivra D'Effriel, managed to row her small boat into a cave. She was severely burnt, but lived. The same went for Léon-Compère-Léandra, a shoemaker who was on the very edge of the cloud, just outside of Saint-Pierre. He gave an account of his survival, but many were skeptical of the details. He described taking shelter in his home, but his home was later found to have been destroyed. Most believe he had, in fact, been flung into the ocean. However he managed it, he stumbled into the town of Fon St. Denis, four miles south of St. Pierre, burnt, naked, and raving. Initially, the people there thought he was a madman. Back in St. Pierre, the heat and fire and gas starved the area of oxygen, suffocating anyone who might have somehow survived the force and heat. The vacuum created a gale-force wind, which roared back up the mountain. The rising gases and ash formed a storm cloud, which rained mud on the ruins of the city for hours. It wasn't enough to extinguish the fires, though. They burned on for three full days, so hot that no one could land back in the city. Or what once had been the city. It was like St. Pierre was a burr on a titan's shoulder, and in one flaming motion, the giant had brushed it away. The dead included Harar, the newspaper man, Mayor Fouché, the Monsignor, Senator Knight, and Candidate Persin. Governor Moutet was on a ship bound for Prechure to evacuate the town when the flow hit, breaking up the boat. How he died, I cannot say, but die he did. His wife, Marie, too, who had followed her husband dutifully around the world, hoping to make a home in the Caribbean, she had followed him one last time from the safety of Fort de France to what Louis assured her was the equal safety of Saint-Pierre. She was waiting for him in a local hotel when the hotel came down around her. Most accounts of the 1902 eruption of Mount Pele that I have read are eager to make villains of all of them. To say that Harar and Fouché and Monsignor Perel knew or should have known what was coming. They reserve their deepest ire for Louis Moutet, who could have evacuated St. Pierre, but chose not to because of a stupid election. The best book I have found on this subject, though, makes the opposing case. The Last Days of St. Pierre is a perfect book for us Constantines. It is compellingly written, it is thorough, and it's not afraid to temper its conclusions in accordance with the evidence, to say, I really don't know for sure. But on the subject of Louis Moutet's culpability, author Ernest Zabrowski Jr. is less equivocal if he'd been motivated by voter turnout, Zabrowski says, then Mutet would not have stayed himself, and would not have brought Marie to Saint-Pierre. He must have been acting only out of the science he had available to him. But I think Zabrowski misses the point here, too. Because the question of motive is not either-or. The issue is not whether Saint-Pierre was left unevacuated in spite of the danger— but how much of a part the election played in making Mutet and the others overlook the danger. Incentives are funny things. They can overwhelm our sense of risk, color our rationality. It's hard to call Mutet the villain because he is so clearly a victim. But that's the way with ideology. Often the real bad guy isn't the prejudiced, but the prejudice itself. And what it drives us to do. Not just to others but to ourselves. The dead also included Gaston Landis, the science teacher whose telescope had first captured the foreshadowing wisps of smoke. He was on the edge of the blast zone too, and covered in thick vegetation, which prevented his immediate death. He was found an hour after the flow passed through by his neighbor, who had come searching for her two missing children. Landis, along with two of his students and two of his servants, were writhing and screaming, burnt from head to toe, and bleeding from their noses and mouths. They cried out in hoarse voices for water, but could not drink. At noon, Landis finally expired, after gasping out his final words. "'What on earth happened? Will someone please tell me what happened?' The dead included the other members of the Scientific Commission, aside from Merville, the chemist, who had never shown up in St. Pierre for some by now quite understandable reason. The dead included... everyone. The whole city. 28,000? 30,000? 35,000? Who can say? All records were themselves destroyed, along with each and every individual, in what had up until 801, May 8, 1902, been called Little Paris. Every individual, bar one. In a dark and dingy cell, dug into a hillside and dug out from the ground, built from one foot thick stone with only a single small slit above the doorway, The man known as Sanson was waiting for his breakfast, when he was instead greeted by shadow and roaring and heat. The heat came pouring in from the one tiny window. Sanson had to remove his shirt, wet it with his own urine, and stuff it in the hole to protect himself. He was still badly burnt and locked in a cell, buried beneath mud and ash and volcanic rock, without food, without water. But on the bright side, he was alive. He and he alone. No one left to let him out, but no one to say what he had done to land himself there either. All records turned to ash. After four days, he was found, behind three feet of ash piled up against the dungeon door. Like every other detail of Sanson's story, we can't say by whom. Probably looters, who didn't want the attention. They brought him to a priest, Father Mary, at the city of Morn Rouge, who fed and sheltered him and did the best he could to treat his wounds. Word of the miraculous survivor escaped along with him. Stories filled up papers all around the world. They gave his name as Ludger Silbaris, or Ludger Morel, or Ludger Simbaris, or Louis-Auguste Cyprus, or August Cyprus, or Joseph Sibiracci, or Joseph Sertout, or even Raoul Sartaret. He went by Samson unless that was meant to be Samson the papers said he had been drunk and disorderly the papers said he had attacked a friend with a cutlass over a debt the papers said he'd gotten into a barroom brawl they said he was a murderer spared from hanging by the now dead Governor Mutet they even said he was sentenced to die on the morning of May 8, 1902 but that God had saved him and delivered his sentence upon everyone else instead There's no telling. Sanson survived, yes, and he was freed, too, although reports that he was pardoned seem to misunderstand the blurriness of the whole ordeal. But enigmatically, he did not clarify his story, even his name. He was, it seemed, happy enough to go along with whatever line he was asked for. Whatever crime you wanted him to have committed, he would say he had committed it. Whatever name you wanted to call him by, he would answer to. Whatever extraordinary report of his survival you had heard, he had lived it. In March of 1903, a man arrived in Mourn Rouge from the United States, looking for the individual he had read about, called, as far as he knew, Ludger Silberis. Whether that was his name or not, Sanson was fine with answering to it again. The man was a booking agent from Barnum & Bailey Circus, and he had an offer for Sanson. He gave Sanson $100 and shipped him off to Ellis Island, where he received new official documentation of his existence. Sanson was put on display as a sideshow, advertised as the man who lived through doomsday, and the most marvelous man in the world. In a shudder-inducing bit of purgatorial irony, his new home was built to look like his last one. The display he worked and lived in was made as an exact replica of the cell back in St. Pierre. But otherwise, his new life was very unlike St. Pierre. It was cold. No one spoke French. And the racism, already a constant factor in Sanson's Caribbean life, took on a whole new severity as a circus act in the United States. In June, he allegedly stabbed a night watchman with the circus. The circumstances are disputed. And was nearly lynched. Bailey himself had to step in to calm the mob. After pleading not guilty on June 5th, Sanson disappears again. He may have stayed with the circus, but if so, they stopped advertising his act. And the reports from the stabbing seem to suggest Barnum and Bailey's was done trying to work with him after the incident. If he was found guilty and sent to prison, there is no record of that. He is supposed to have died in 1929, but what his life may have looked like until then is anyone's guess. As far as the record is concerned, he is forever in a cell, awaiting trial. Just as he was in a cell before that, performing for Gawking Carnival Marks. And the cell before that, with its thick stone walls, built into the hillside, with three feet of ash piled up against the door. As everyone he ever knew, and anyone who ever knew him, died in fire just outside. (laughs) Music for today's episode provided by Blue Dot Sessions and Epidemic Sound. Voice talent from Heather Chrysler. If you haven't listened to her episode on Disney, Happy Place, then we're not friends. It's great. Get to it. This show only continues to exist via the generosity of our Patreons who support its making. Thanks to all of you. In particular, two of our newest backers, both of whom provided enigmatic names for me to stumble over. GMV and Uncelebre Incanu. If you'd like to help keep the wheels on this show, you can join the other Constantines by heading over to patreon.com theconstant the constant and signing up. For your trouble, you'll get early and ad-free access to new episodes as well as monthly bonus content, the latest bit of which will be a live show I performed about RFK Jr.'s presidential bid. I probably have nice things to say about it, right? Until next time, from Chicago, Illinois, where the closest thing we had to a volcano was Mount Trashmore, a 35-foot-tall garbage heap in Bridgeport that polluted the surrounding neighborhood for decades, this has been The Constant. The Orselina was contracted to transport a hall of Antian sugar to La Havre, La I can't, I can't, La Havre, La The Orselina was contracted to transport a hall of Antian sugar to La Havre in the north of France, France. <laughs> France